Well, this is what we refer to as Palm Sunday and the beginning of what we walk into as Holy Week, the portions of Scripture from which we draw our information about the final days of the life of Christ are very, very familiar to us. In fact, sometimes I get concerned that we have certain passages of Scripture that are so familiar to us, they just, we know them by rote so well, they almost can lose their impact, lest we go back and really study them and ask the Lord through the Holy Spirit to give us insight. Because uh, we say the same things over and over, just like certain verses that we learn. We learn them and we memorize them and we can spit them out in a certain way that can come out of our head, but then they, they bypass our heart. They just simply become just words, and we need to be careful that that does not take place, just words. There was a little boy that had been attending Sunday school for many years. He had the same teacher for all those years, and she used to finish every lesson by saying, and the moral of the story is, that's how she ended every lesson, week after week, year after year for him, until finally the day come, came when he was promoted up to the next class. Promotion day came, and he moved on to the, the next grade level in Sunday school. And so he went to that class, and his mom asked him after Sunday school that day, said, so how did you like the new teacher? He said, oh, she was just great, and she has no morals at all. <laughs> Oops. Just words. <clears throat> Got to be careful with those words. Lest it lose its impact on us, I want us to turn again to the entry of Christ into Jerusalem and to look afresh at what it meant then and what it can mean for us today. We know that within a week he will have been betrayed by the kiss of a friend, denied by another friend, tried on false charges, found guilty and crucified on a cross between two thieves, buried in a tomb, in a borrowed tomb, and then three days later he will rise again from the dead. We know it so very, very well. And so this week we begin another holy week by turning our eyes and our hearts toward Jerusalem and the entry of Christ into that city. Now this story, as we know it, appears in all four Gospels, but I want to read it from uh, the book of Luke. I I labored whether to go with the Matthew version or Luke, but I've gone with Luke this morning. So if they're going to put it on the screen, let me, let me read it for you briefly, if you'll follow along. Luke chapter 19, starting with verse 28. Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As they came to the towns of Bethphage, or some say Bethphage, and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just simply say, the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. As he rode along, the crowds spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When they reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout 
and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven, just as was sung here this morning by our choir. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And he replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. Lord, ask Add your blessing to the reading of the Word this morning. Palm Sunday is all about God's people giving proper recognition and praise to the name of the Lord. Therefore, let's declare today clearly, today is a day of praise. Today is a day of praise for God's people. In fact, I want you to put your hands together and say, Lord, we praise you. Come on, let's do it. It's a day of praise. Bless the Lord. I'm hoping somebody's going to praise the Lord today. I've told several folks lately, I'm just waiting for somebody to bust out one of these days and say, I don't care what everybody else thinks. I don't care whatever else somebody want to may think of it or whatever they, they can think whatever they will, but I'm going to bless the name of the Lord Jesus. And I know there are people in this fellowship, there are people in this house today who love Jesus at that level. You don't care what anyone else thinks. You know he's worthy of praise and you're ready to bless the name of the Lord. Today's a day of praise. Luke and the other gospel writers tell us that the crowd soon gathered around before Jesus and they began to throw their cloaks on the ground before him. And they cut down palm branches and they throw those down before him. These were traditional means of honoring a victorious king. That's how they did that in that day. And they accompanied those actions with cries of, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And they worship him and they proclaim him as king and as savior. Now we know what Hosanna means. It means save or God save us. It's a cry for God's help. And so while it originally was a cry for his help and for salvation... Over time, the Jews changed its meaning or allowed its meaning to be adjusted to one of acclamation and praise. And so here they are worshiping Jesus, crying Hosanna in praise before him. And ironically, at the same time, they're saying, God, save us. So it is both a shout of praise and it's a cry for help, all of the same word. And haven't we all been in that position where we've said, Lord, I'm in need of you. It's not my brother, it's not my sister, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. I'm the one that needs you. But not only am I shouting out my need for you and my cry for help, God save me, but with it I'm shouting my praise, saying, I know you can do it, Lord. So, Lord, I'm shouting out my praise, blessed be your name, Hosanna, and it's also my cry for help today. Church, I think there's something about this that challenges all of us, both as individuals and as a corporate body of believers that gathers in this house. And that is to keep our praise fresh before the Lord. This idea just hit me yesterday as I was kind of finalizing these thoughts and thinking about it. Lord, have I offered you fresh praise today? Is it it new today? 
Or am I relying on something that I did a few days ago or last week or, or last month or, or last year or sometime in the past? Well, yes, I praised him when this happened or that happened. Have you offered fresh praise today? Because the truth is this morning he gave you fresh mercies. New this morning were his mercies and great is his faithfulness. And so it, it challenges me as I hope it challenges you. As we come into the house of the Lord this morning, I don't care if it's overcast outside. I don't care if it's raining outside. The truth is, he's worthy of your fresh praise. He's worthy of the fruit of your lips that comes from what he's done for you today. The fact that he woke you up this morning, he started you on your way today. And your praise to him should be fresh today. Oh, Lord, it's today. I, whatever yesterday happened is now gone. It's today I want to give you fresh praise because you're worthy today. Fresh praise from God's people. We need to be ever on guard, church, on this day of praise, lest our praises ever become empty. Our songs simply an exercise in common practice and our hearts in the process of that can become distant from the very Lord who deserves our full attention, our full praise, and full glory. And not only that, but we must be ever ready to quickly and exuberantly lift our voices in praise and exaltation of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let it not be said of us that we have to be pumped and primed by the worship leader who finally hits on the right song and plays the right chord and does the right this. No, no, no. It's not reliant upon any of that. If there's not an instrument in the house today, you have a voice by which you can lift and bless the name of the Lord Jesus. Our praise should be quick. We should be quick to respond in praise. We should be exuberant in our response of praise because he's worthy of that. Where are those in the house today who are people of praise who will bless the name of the Lord? Where are you today? Bless the name of the Lord. Let's see what the word of the Lord has for us today as we take a look at this familiar story. There are at least three responses. Could be more, but I'll probably hopefully get to three of them to this which took place that we just read from the Gospel of Luke that I want us to consider this morning as we again rehearse the events of the glorious triumphant entry into Jerusalem. There's the response of obedience that I see in this passage. It's the obedience to Christ's authority. Jesus gives a command to his disciples and they are to go to the village ahead and they will, there they will find a donkey tied up with its colt. They're to untie them and bring them to Jesus and he even gives them instructions what they're to say in case they are challenged about why they're doing that. Why are, you, why are you taking that? Yes, and they were challenged and so they do exactly that. The two disciples obey their instructions. They obeyed the instructions. They didn't question them. They didn't say, well, well why and why those? And they didn't question them. They just did it. They didn't ask for an explanation or a reason for their instructions. Why did you? No, they just did it. And they never ask, as many people do, well, well, if I do that, what's in it for me? Many people say that. Well, if I do that, I need to kind of know, what do I get out of it if I do that? They simply obeyed. They understood the concept, just do it. Have you heard that before? Just do it. For you see, obedience is a sign of true discipleship and the sign of a right relationship with Christ. It's how we show that we love him. John in his gospel, chapter 14, in verse 15, records Jesus saying to his disciples, if you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will obey my commands. So right at the very beginning of this holy week, the last week of Christ's life, there is obedience. And we see it in a couple of different ways. There's the obedience to the, of the disciples to go as instructed to get the donkey for Christ to ride into Jerusalem. But there is also the obedience of Christ to the will of the Father and to fulfillment of the Scriptures. By doing what he did, Jesus was obeying his Father's will and word by sending for the donkey even. We know that the prophet Zechariah had foretold that the king would come riding on a donkey. Well, let's talk about this donkey for a minute. Why a donkey? Surely, if it had been you or me and we were the king, we would have wanted to ride on a grand white horse. Amen? Looks better. I look much better on a grand white horse than I do on a donkey. I don't look too good on either one, but... But here's what you need to understand. At the time of Christ, a king rode a horse when he came to bring war. But he rode a donkey when he came in peace. There was a difference. The Messiah would come riding on a donkey because he came to bring peace. Peace between God and man. So understand it was a deliberate, intentional act of Christ to enter Jerusalem this way. And for those with eyes to see, ears to hear, and minds to remember what the prophet Zechariah had said, they would understand the significance of what was happening before them. Those who recall the words of Zechariah, who in chapter 9 of Zechariah had said this, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, and yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And he goes on to say, I will remove the battle, I will destroy all the weapons, and and, um, your king will bring peace to all the nations. It goes on from there. The very fact that Jesus came riding on a donkey, accompanied by shouts of the people, was a public proclamation of his kingship and his messiahship. So when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the response we see is obedience. Now about this donkey. Excuse me. Donkeys were valuable. And uh, they were often co-owned by several families since the families were typically poor and no one family could afford a donkey. So several families went together. But it was ancient law which required any citizen to render to the king any item or service that they could offer that he or one of his emissaries might require. That was the ancient law. If the king needed it, you gave it up. It belonged to them. Anything that you owned, any item that you had or service that you were able to to offer. Think of Rahab's scarlet rope. Think of Paul's bucket, or David's sling, Samson's jawbone, Moses' staff that split the seas and smote the rock, bringing forth water. Or what about the perfume poured onto Jesus' feet and that Mary offered and wiped with her hair? Or what about the wood of the manger? 
This reminds us something that we need to know today. God can use anything. He can use anything. And this can apply to us. Because God can use anything, this is why we should surrender everything to the Lord. The truth is it all belongs to Him anyway. Do you know that you don't have one thing that God didn't give you? I don't have one thing that God didn't give me. It all belongs to Him anyway. But lest we hold anything in our heart or, or cling to it in any way on our own, let's surrender it all to Jesus. For when we do yield ourselves, our possessions, though they be small, God can take the uncommon, the seemingly small item and use it for His great glory. Think of those who also offered a service, if you will, to the Lord. Think of the risk takers, Rahab who sheltered the spy, the brethren who smuggled Paul out of town. Think of the innocent bystander who would in just a week now be standing on the side of the road as Jesus crouched under the weight of the cross is asked to carry the cross for Jesus. God can take anything we offer Him and use it for His glory. And you may think, dear friend, that you've got nothing to give. I know plenty of people who are so self-deprecating and, and have so uh, low esteem of themselves. They think, I've got nothing. I have nothing to give and I have, I have nothing to offer. But the truth is, it always seems like God takes the most unusual, uh, inconspicuous, unobvious, small thing that no one else would use, and that's what He uses and receives great glory from it. And we need to remember this, like the old hymn says, little is much when God is in it. Little is much when God is in it. So just in case you're sitting there today, and there's been a season of your life where you felt you've had nothing to give. You felt you're drained and you're empty and, and you look around you and you don't see much resource and much to offer. Just remember, God can take the smallest thing. Just lift your eyes and say, Lord, whatever it is that I have, it's yours. I'm yours to command. It all belongs to you. And what little we bring him, what little offering we have, God can take it and he can do amazing things with it that are beyond our ability to dream up and beyond our ability to understand. So don't forget, friends, we only see through a glass darkly right now. We don't have the whole picture. We can't see what he could do with that small piece of wood, with that small thing, with that one word that you would speak to someone else and what can happen with it, how that can grow and grow and grow and God can receive the glory for it. God can do anything, church. Think of the 19th century Sunday school teacher who led a Boston shoe clerk to the Lord. Follow me here. You've never heard the teacher's name. It was Kimball. The name of the converted shoe clerk was Dwight L. Moody who became an evangelist and had a major influence on Frederick B. Meyer, who began to preach on college campuses and while doing, doing so converted J. Wilbur Chapman, who became involved with the YMCA and arranged for a former baseball player named Billy Sunday to come to Charlotte, North Carolina for a revival. A group of Charlotte community leaders were so enthused about the results of the revival, they planned another and invited Mordecai Ham to town to preach. And in that revival, Billy Graham yielded his life to Jesus Christ. Now, do you think that Boston Sunday school teacher had any idea what would become of his small conversation, the little thing that he offered the Lord Jesus? 
Do you think he thought it, it would have the kind of effect, it would have the kind of chain reaction that it did? No, we don't know what God can do because he's God. He's the sovereign one, and he can do all things wonderfully well. No, but he, just like the owners of the cult, the cult gave a small gift to the king, and God made it to come out for his glory in multiplied ways. Whatever it is that you have today, be it large or small, give it to Jesus. Let him use it, and then stand back in amazement at what all he can do with what you have surrendered to him. Now about this donkey. It was a miracle in and of itself that he was riding on an untamed donkey. Think of it. His power, the power of Jesus, had tamed the colt. Even, get this, in the midst of all the shouting and in the midst of the singing, and the waving of palm branches, and all the dust, and the cloaks being thrown down in front. Have any of you ever ridden a donkey before? Have you ever ridden one that had never been tamed before? None of that spooked that donkey at all. For he was carrying the very one who had created him. Here is Jesus riding upon the back of a baby donkey. And nothing is wilder and more hard to control than a baby donkey. But the power of Jesus tamed this colt. But it's nothing new to Jesus to tame something. He tamed the wild seas. He tamed dangerous storms. He tamed demoniacs. He tamed persecutors. He had the power over the sick and even raising the dead. Taming that little donkey was no big deal to Jesus at all. Why, Jesus can even tame Jack Tebow. And he can tame you and me, church. What wild, unbridled thing is raging in your life? What is it that's causing you to lose your equilibrium? What is it that's being spooked? In your life, whatever it is, bring it to Jesus and ask for his peace. And watch that thing come to a place of calm and serene simply because Jesus can tame it. I know the peace speaker. I know him by name. He calms the winds and the waves. When he says peace be still, they have to obey. How many are glad you know the peace speaker today? So there's the response of obedience to Christ's authority. There's a second response I want to mention. That's the response of worship. So Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And the crowds are cheering, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. No wonder they're cheering. Look what has taken place right before their very eyes. Think with me in your mind's eye for just a moment. Who might be there in that crowd? Imagine a large crowd of people singing, shouting, praising. And you're looking around and all of a sudden you become inspired because you see someone that you know has been touched by Jesus as they're responding in praise. Over here, we might have seen the paralytic who was let through the roof saying, Jesus made me to walk again. And here he is shouting and singing his praise. Maybe over here we look and we see blind Bartimaeus who can say of Jesus, I don't know what happened. All I know is I was blind, but now I can see. 
Just like the gentleman Stephen on Friday night in Cologne that God touched his eyes right in front of us. Do you think that man would be shouting his praise to Jesus? Who else might have been there? Standing maybe just right over here, we see the leper from Galilee who rejoiced over having new limbs and new fingers and new skin. And I'm sure right in the middle of it all, right in the middle of where everyone could see was Lazarus who rejoiced because Jesus had raised him from the dead. No wonder they were praising. Look what they had seen the Lord do. And Mary was there who said that Jesus accepted her praise, which came from a heart pure with a desire to please him. So with a crowd like that, oh my goodness, wouldn't you like to have been the worship leader that day, Pastor Brent? It wouldn't take much to say, you want to praise the name of the Lord? Do you want to recognize what all he has done? Why wouldn't they be shouting the praise of Jesus? And they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the response is worship. Loud, dynamic, enthused, excited worship. And quite honestly, church, I know enough about the testimonies in this room that are scattered around this place this morning. I could look all in every section of this sanctuary today. And I know there's somebody that could say, oh, when I think of the goodness of the Lord. When I think of what he's done for me, it ought to cause somebody in this crowd today to stand up and say, when I think about the Lord, how he saved me, how he raised me, how he filled me with the Holy Ghost, and how he healed me to the uttermost. When I think about the Lord, oh, he picked me up and he turned me around. I was headed on a path of destruction. You wouldn't believe how bad I was headed. But the Lord picked me up and he turned me around and he set my feet on solid ground. Oh, it makes me want to shout hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, Lord, you're worthy. Oh, we shout your praise today. It's a day of praise. Wouldn't you like to have been there on that day and been part of the group that says, I'm going to praise? Don't you love it when you're in a crowd of people that are, with no inhibitions, nothing holding them back at all? They say, oh, I want with a sense of abandon, I just want to praise Jesus. What I think of what he's done for me. Oh, you don't know like I know what the Lord has done for me. But as always, whenever Jesus is being given proper recognition, when Jesus is being given praise, there are those who think it's not proper. Review with me verses 39 and 40. Just a moment. <clears throat> Some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And he replied, If they kept quiet the stones along the road would burst into cheers. Brent, I can't tell you how many times I stood right here and led worship for 33 years, and I thought, if these people don't praise today, those stones on those walls are going to cry out. So these religious leaders opposed Jesus <clears throat> because he threatened their status, he threatened their position, their authority, he threatened their legalism and power over the people. He threatened their understanding of God and their way of salvation. And he quite literally took their faith and turned it upside down. When Jesus comes to town, expect opposition. When Jesus comes into your life, dear one, I wish I could tell you something different, but the truth is expect opposition. I read of an English Anglican cleric by the name of John Stott, 
who at the end of a service, <clears throat> after people had come to accept new Christians, had, had accepted Christ in the service, he would ask them to go to the back of the room right before he dismissed the large crowd of people. He said, go to the back of the room. And now as we dismiss the congregation and they leave to exit, I want you to try to work your way toward the front. Why was he doing that? He wanted them to know and understand from that moment forward they would be going against the flow of the crowd. And how very true that is. How many of you found that to be true? Not everyone gets excited when you come to know Jesus. He wanted them to know what it was like. So fight your way against the crowd as they all exit that way in force. He's asking new Christians, you work your way to the front because that's exactly what it's going to be like. But Jesus said if these folks stop their praise, then the stones along the road would burst into cheers. The stones are those people who would come to faith in Jesus and not have any concern for the opinions of men. They don't care. The stones want to praise the Lord. They will honor the Lord with whatever he requires of them. They will glorify the Lord in everything they do. They will not be stopped. They will not be stilled. And they will not be silenced. The stones are those who have learned that silence is often misunderstood as indifference for a lack of love to God. Silence is often misunderstood as a lack of commitment to God. Your silence, particularly in the house of God, is often misunderstood as a desire for neutrality and political correctness. The stones are those who have the Spirit of God in them, and they have learned that to quench the Spirit or to put out the Spirit's flame is to allow an attitude of self-glorification. The stones are those who live with the mindset that their praise is a counter-response to the sinful culture that daily tries to invade our lives, every one of us. The stones are those who know the Word of God calls us to reject mere religious behavior, calls us to reject mere ceremonialism, and calls us to reject those who promote the lifting up of people above the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was saying this, that if his followers could have been silenced, which they couldn't, if they could, if they could have been silenced, there would have been someone Someone in that crowd would have been bold enough and strong enough to step out and declare the praises of him who has called us from darkness into marvelous light. And I'm asking, in the house today, do we have any stones in the house today? Bless the name of the Lord. You will not be silenced. You will not be still because he's worthy of your praise. then let us cry out today just like the blind man did because it's Jesus that we want. It's Jesus we cry out for. It's Jesus that heals. It's Jesus that delivers. And it's Jesus that sets men free from the bondage that can overtake them. It's all about Jesus. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There is the response of obedience. There's the response of worship. But there's one more. It's the response of cleansing. When Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, he comes riding on a donkey, and the donkey is a sign of a king who has come in peace. But look with me at two verses we've not yet read of this same chapter 19 of Luke, though you know it well. Luke 19, verse, verses 45 and 46. Then, right after the triumphal entry, Jesus entered the temple 
and began to drive out the people selling animals for sacrifices. And he said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be a house of, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. So right after his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, he goes straight to the temple and he commits a violent act. He has come in peace, and yet here he is overturning tables and whipping people out of the temple. Is there a contradiction here? No, I I think not, and let me explain. Jesus goes right to the heart of the Jewish faith. He goes to the temple, to the very place where it, it is said that the Holy of Holies resides. He goes to the place set apart from everyday use for the worship of God. And what does he find? He finds a den of thieves, a place full of iniquity. And in his righteous anger, he cleanses the temple. You see, church, when Christ comes into the temple, there can be no other gods. When Christ comes into the temple, there can be no other gods. When he comes into the temple, it's to be a place of prayer, a place of communion with the Father. That and that alone is to be the priority and the purpose. The pursuit of personal gain, the exploitation of vulnerable people, and the misuse of the things of God. He will overturn, flip the tables, and cleanse from the temple. So when Christ comes into my temple, into my life, he comes to cleanse. He comes to cleanse me of my sin, to cleanse me of my personal ambition and passions and gods that take me away from God my Father. He comes to overturn and drive out my money tables and all the places where I exchange the things of God for the lesser things of this world. He comes to cleanse and drive out all that would rob me of the place of prayer and communion with God. When Jesus comes to the temple, the response is cleansing by him. In the temple, people who were supposed to be praising were buying and selling. Those who were supposed to be worshiping were cheating, lying, and stealing from other worshipers. Could that happen today? Does it happen today? Do we have other gods that we worship today? You know, in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul was in Athens one day. And when addressing the council, he said, Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious. As I walk through your streets, I see that you have shrines, many shrines. In fact, you have so many that I saw one that you, uh, you put up called to an unknown God, just in case you missed one. So I, I noticed that. And he goes on to talk about this unknown God, and he says, I'd love to tell you about him. You know the story. Well, that was Athens and their day and time and culture. And now here we are in 2014 in Dallas-Fort Worth, and our culture has its own gods. Did you know that? This city has its own gods. You know what God we bow down to? Let me tell you a couple of them. We bow down and we worship the God of comfort and convenience. At all costs, you must make me comfortable. At all costs, I must be made happy. Do what pleases me. Meet my expectations. Make it easy on me. And that is a God we worship in this city. You can be quiet if you want. I'm telling you the truth. 
There's another God that we bow down to in this city, and it's the God of status. We want to appear successful. We want to look like we've got it all together. We want people to respect us. We want people to think we're beautiful or good looking, and that's a God we worship. How can I say that so confidently? How do I know that's true? Because our money, our time, our energy, and our effort go to appease those gods and be sure that they are satisfied. Now you chew on that a while and be mad at me all you want. But I'm telling you the truth. How many know I'm telling you the truth today? But this is Palm Sunday, and this is a day of praise. And here's what happens. Jesus has come to cleanse the temple. We know that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, so let me ask you, is it possible for these words of Christ this morning to be applied to your temple? Is there stuff in your temple that he needs to drive out? Are there tables in your life that need to be flipped over? Are you trading when you ought to be worshiping? And I mean by that, under the guise of worshiping, actually bargaining with God. Are you trading his ways for worldly comfort and pleasure? Jesus criticized and drove out those who desecrated the temple. And let me ask you, what is desecrating your temple this morning? Who or what is it this morning that Jesus would look at and say, that must be driven out. I'm going to flip the table on that today. What tables in your temple need to be overturned and cleansed? But remember, please, remember, the purpose of cleansing is to bring healing and restoration. It's not because there's a God who's angry at you. This is why it's still a day of praise, even though it's a day of cleansing. Because for your temple to be cleansed is an act of God's redemptive grace. And cleansing is for your healing and restoration. When you cleanse a wound, it is to remove that which would bring infection and to aid in healing and the return to wholeness. When Christ comes into your life to cleanse, it is to do just that, to restore you to wholeness of life. It's not just to overturn tables. It has a purpose to, it has a purpose to make my, my temple a place of prayer and communion with the Father. There's one final thought that I had this morning. Pastor Brent, you can come if you wish. This idea of Jesus cleansing the temple is a point of controversy for theologians. And here's why. And I want you to listen to this very, very, very carefully. Some of you know this. Some of you might be a new thought. The question about cleansing the temple would be this. Did it happen once or did it happen twice? While it's true that this incident is mentioned in all four of the gospel accounts, it's also true that the synoptics, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give indication that Jesus did this at the end of his ministry, right at the end, toward the end of his life, before he was to be crucified. But by contrast, the gospel of John gives indication that Jesus cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry. In fact, you'll find it in John chapter 2. And so it could be debated any number of ways. The problem for us 
who casually read scriptures, we go, we're reading the book of John, okay, Jesus cleansed the temple, yes, I heard that in Sunday school, there it is, da 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 And then on another day, another week, another time, you go to the book of Matthew and you read it there, yes, he cleansed the temple, I remember. We assume it's all the same. I'm going to propose to you this morning that in John's gospel, you'll find it listed in, in a different chronology. And you'll also find different verbiage being used. Now you, you and I can let the theologians battle that out as they will. But I'm going to tell you, it would not surprise me if Jesus did cleanse the temple twice. And if so, what does that mean to me and you today? I remind you again, Palm Sunday is a day of victory. Anytime Jesus comes to cleanse, it's a good day. We may not feel too good about it at the moment, but anytime he comes to drive out that which is impure and to drive out that which is not pleasing in his sight, it's a good day and it's a day of victory and it's a day of praise. It's a good day. He may have come riding on a donkey, but the truth is, church, he's come to flip over the tables in your life and mine and to drive out the junk. And he's saying, I've come to bring this thing back to its intended purpose for what it was meant to be. And that includes you, for I'm a God of restoration. So in the book of John, in chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, before anything else happens, and right after the miracle of turning the water into wine in Cana of Galilee, Jesus clears the temple and he says, stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. But then according to this theory that I'm proposing, it's three years later at the end of his ministry in the Synoptic Gospels that he does it the second time. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he comes riding in on a donkey and they wave palm branches and the religious leaders oppose him and tell him to silence his followers. And Jesus comes to the temple and flips over the tables and he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Which means this, that the stuff he kicked out of the temple three years before had shown back up again. You know why? Because junk always wants to come back. Hello. Money changers will always try to come back and set up the stuff again. Any and everything that can and will pollute the temple will work hard to find its way back. And we know that 1 Corinthians 6.19 says now this, don't you realize your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So Jesus says to us today, now you're the temple that I'm coming to. And he's asking, what's been set back up in your life that we dealt with last year? What has crept back up on you or in you that we have to come again today and flip over the tables? That fear, that anger, that lust, that junk that once was gone, it's crept back in. But today, you recognize that he has come in peace and he's come in power and he's come with his cleansing power. Let's bow our heads for prayer.